0: be reading this morning Genesis chapter 8 in its entirety. Genesis chapter 8, hear the word of the Lord. Then God remembered Noah and every living thing and all the animals that were with him in the ark. And God made a wind to pass over the earth and the waters subsided. The fountains of the deep and the windows of heaven were also stopped and the rain from heaven was restrained and the waters receded continually from the earth. At the end of the hundred and fifty days, the waters decreased. Then the ark rested in the seventh month, the seventeenth day of the month, on the mountain of Ararat, and the waters decreased continually until the tenth month. In the tenth month, on the first day of the month, the tops of the mountains were seen. So it came to pass at the end of forty days that Noah opened the window of the ark which he had made, Then he sent out a raven which kept going to and fro until the waters had dried up from the earth. He also sent out from himself a dove to see if the waters had receded from the face of the ground, but the dove found no resting place for the sole of her foot, and she returned into the ark to him, for the waters were on the face of the whole earth. So he put out his hand and took her and drew her into the ark to himself. He waited yet another seven days, and again he sent to the dove out from the ark. Then the dove came to him in the evening, and behold, a freshly plucked olive leaf was in her mouth. And Noah knew that the waters had receded from the earth. So he waited yet another seven days and sent out the dove, which did not return again to him any more. And it came to pass in the six hundred and first year, in the first month, the first day of the month, that the waters were dried up from the earth. And Noah removed the covering of the ark and looked, and indeed the surface of the ground was dry. And in the second month, On the twenty-seventh day of the month, the earth was dried. Then God spoke to Noah, saying, Go out of the ark, you and your wife and your sons and your sons' wives with you. Bring out with you every living thing of all flesh that is with you, birds and cattle and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth, so that they may abound on the earth and be fruitful and multiply on the earth. So Noah went out and his sons and his wife and his sons' wives with him. Every animal, every creeping thing, every bird, and whatever creeps on the earth, according to their families, went out of the ark. Then Noah built an altar to the Lord, and took of every clean animal and of every clean bird, and offered burnt offerings on the altar. And the Lord smelled a soothing aroma. Then the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground for man's sake, although the imagination of man's heart is evil from his youth, nor will I again destroy every living thing as I have done." While the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, winter and summer, and day and night shall not cease. Well, The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. You may be seated. One of the most difficult things that we do as humans is to wait. We joke about the difficulty of developing patience. Don't pray for patience, or the Lord might give it to you. And it's true. It's funny because it's true. We're not good at being patient. And this isn't something that we learn as we get older, either. We're born impatient. Anyone that has raised children knows you don't have to teach them this. At a very young age, they demonstrate their impatience. So this is baked into our sin nature because of the fall. If you think about it, impatience was part of the problem back in Genesis 3 that led to Adam's sin in the garden. As we've said so many times now in our study of Genesis, the garden had an an eschatology. It had an, an end at which it was aimed. Adam was supposed to tend and cultivate the garden, expand the borders until it had filled all of the earth so that the whole of creation became a temple to the Lord, filled with worshipers. And if he had kept the covenant, he would have entered God's rest as God's vice-regent, as a king over the creation. But Adam was impatient with that process. He wanted that authority now. And so they believed the lie that Satan told them, you will be like God. And they took of the fruit. And so we see that impatience is almost always bound up with selfishness, with a desire to have something now that we are supposed to wait for. Adam failed in this regard. And now we find ourselves at this point In history, where God has wiped out most of sinful humanity and is beginning again with eight people Noah and his family. Noah found grace in the Lord's sight, and by that grace, he was preserved from the sins of the culture around him, so that he was singularly righteous among his generation. The narrative here is is building anticipation. Is Noah? The promised one? Is he the seed of the woman who will crush the head of the serpent? Is he the one? Will he succeed where Adam failed? Well, this morning we will see that in some ways he does, but there's also a foreshadowing of what comes next. Now, this is the second chapter dealing with the flood. In chapter 7, the flood came, and in chapter 8, the flood goes. So there's a reversal that we see here in chapter 8. In chapter 7, the whole earth is covered with water. Mankind and all living creatures on the face of the earth are destroyed. In chapter 8, the water recedes, and man and beasts once again set foot on the face of the earth. So you can see there's a reversal, and that reversal is pictured for us in the text. In chapter 7, verse 4, Noah was given seven days warning before the rains came, and then in verse ten, the end of that seven days, the rains come, and then in verse seventeen, we're told that the flood was on the earth for forty days, and then in verse twenty-four, it says that the waters prevailed on the earth for hundred and fifty days. Well, now in chapter eight, verse three, we're told, and the waters receded continually from the earth. At the end of the hundred and fifty days, the waters decreased. So the 150 days of the water prevailing on the earth is reversed and the waters begin to recede. And then in verse six, we read, so it came to pass at the end of 40 days that Noah opened the window of the ark, which he had made. So 40 days after the tops of the mountains become visible again, Noah opens the window. The 40 days of the rain on the earth is now reversed as the land begins to show itself out of the waters. And then in verse 10, He waited yet another seven days, and again he sent the dove out from the ark. So Noah had sent a dove, and she came back to him, so he waited seven days and sends her out again. This time she comes back with a freshly plucked olive leaf in her mouth, showing that the plants had begun to grow again. This is a reversal of the very start of the rain that would destroy everything. And then in verse 12, So he waited yet another seven days and sent out the dove which did not return to him again anymore. So another seven days of waiting, Noah sends out the dove once more, and she does not come back because the earth has become habitable once more. So this is a reversal of the first seven days of waiting for the rain to begin. So in chapter 7, we have 7, seven, forty, and and 150. And then in chapter 8, we have 150, hundred seven, and 7. The flood is undone. It's brought to an end in a series of reversals that make the point that God's judgment has truly come to an end at this point. It's a beautiful bit of history that God sovereignly orchestrates the timing of this so that we could see these reversals in the text. But now let's back up a moment, and I want us to consider Noah in all of this. God had first spoken to Noah in chapter 6 telling him of this coming judgment that would take the form of a flood, instructing him in the construction of an ark in which his life, the lives of his families and of the animals would be preserved. And God made a covenant promise to Noah in Genesis chapter six, verses 18 and 19. God said, but I will establish my covenant with you. And you shall go into the ark, you, your sons, your wife and your sons' wives with you. And of every living thing, of all flesh, you shall bring two of every sort into the ark to keep them alive with you. They shall be male and female. And then we saw again last week in chapter 7 when God tells him the number of animals to take with him into the ark. In chapter 7, verse 2, God said, "'You shall take with you seven each of every clean animal, a male and his female,' two each of animals that are unclean, a male and his female, also seven each of the birds of the air, male and female, to keep the species alive on the face of all the earth. So it's clear from these passages that God intends Noah and his family to repopulate humanity on the earth, just as he means for the animals that Noah takes in the ark to repopulate according to their kind on the face of the earth. So Noah has this promise from God as he enters the ark. He knows what God's calling on his life is. He knows what his purpose is. This is what God has called me to do. And then the flood comes. Noah and his family are closed up in the ark for a long time. The waters prevailed on the earth for 150 days. That's five months. Five months they're closed up in the ark as the flood ravages the face of the earth. It says that the tops of the mountains were covered to a depth of 15 cubits. That's over 20 feet. Nothing but water. The whole globe covered in water. And we don't know how high the mountains were pre-flood, but that's a lot of water. And Noah and his family are protected from this flood inside the ark. Now, there was a big storm in Florida, the hurricane this past week. Many people died. Many more homes were destroyed because of the water and the wind, but it was nothing compared to the flood that Noah experienced. We saw the scene last week in chapter seven, and it was intense. Death and destruction all around outside the ark. And inside, imagine as the ark begins to move, rising and falling, the timbers groaning under the strain of the movement of this large ship, and then it begins to be tossed around in the waves of this massive ocean that now covers the entire face of the earth, and they're floating around for five months in this boat completely enclosed, and that's where our text begins here in chapter 8, then God remembered Noah and every living thing and all the animals that were with him in the ark. And God made a wind to pass over the earth and the waters subsided. Now, it's not as if God had forgotten, right? It's not as if God had been executing his judgment on the world and five months later, he goes, oh, yeah, Noah, right? He didn't forget. When it says that God remembered, this is another of those anthropomorphisms that we spoke about a few weeks ago. It says God remembered. It simply means that his actions now take the shape, turn towards the saving of those who were in the ark. Previously, they were safe in the ark because God was actively preserving them. But now he undertakes to save them from the flood, to rescue them. And after five months, in which the text records no further revelation from God to Noah, you can imagine that Noah might have begun to wonder, when will this end? What is God's plan here? Because we tend to attribute to God characteristics common to man, such as forgetting and remembering, the text then says God remembered Noah, but God had not forgotten. He had been actively about the work of preserving Noah and all who were with him in the ark. Psalm 93 says, The floods have lifted up, O Lord, the floods have lifted up their voice, The floods lift up their waves. The Lord on high is mightier than the noise of many waters, than the mighty waves of the sea. So in spite of how Noah might perceive the situation in the midst of this flood, God was at work to preserve life. The same is true for us still today. Jesus says in John chapter 10, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me, and I give them eternal life, and they shall never perish. Neither shall anyone snatch them out of my hand. My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and my Father are one. What a glorious promise that no matter how severe the storms of life may seem, those who belong to Christ are secure in the safety of his hand. Paul writes in Romans and asks, Who shall separate us from the love of God in Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or the sword? As it is written, For your sake we are killed all day long, we are accounted as sheep for the slaughter, yet In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death, neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. So saint, if you are in Christ by faith, then you are as safe and secure in his hands as Noah was in the ark. You may be tossed around by the storms of this life, but your eternal life is secure in his hands. You have that promise from the one who cannot lie. But here is Noah, five months cooped up in the ark, tossed around on a stormy sea. It's only at this point that God begins to act in a way that it visibly engaged in not just their preservation, but their salvation. And imagine what this must have been like. Before the flood, the climate was much different. Milder, temperate, gentle weather patterns. Now the fury of God's wrath has been unleashed in a global flood. And after months of floating on the water, something new happens God makes the wind blow. Now, you may know this, but in both Hebrew and Greek, the word for spirit and the word for wind is the same word. In Greek, it's the word pneuma, which, of course, we get our English words, pneumatic, pneumonia, things of that nature. In Hebrew, the word is ruha. It means wind, breath, or spirit. It's the same word that's used in Genesis 1, verse 2, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. So this is clearly meant in in chapter 8 to bring the creation account back into our minds as we read the account of the end of the flood. Just as in the creation, the Spirit of God hovered over the water, so here God makes a wind that blows across the face of the waters. During the first week of creation, the waters were gathered together, divided from one another so that the dry land appears, and here the wind blows and the waters subside and the dry land appears. Clearly, the earth is being remade. In chapter 9, which we'll look at next week, Noah will receive the same covenantal mandate that Adam did to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth This is the biblical storyline of creation, fall, and redemption being recapitulated here in Noah. It will happen again in the creation of the nation of Israel. Once again, we see water, wind, and dry land. The Lord caused the sea to go back by a strong east wind all that night and made the sea into dry land, and the waters were divided. It's the same story. Hebrew word ruhas, God breathes out an east wind to divide the waters of the Red Sea so that the people of God can pass through on dry land, and the wicked Egyptians are drowned in the flood. You can see the connections. They're obvious in the text. It's the recapitulation of the storyline the initial creation, the saving of Noah, the creation of the nation of Israel, and in the new covenant. The church, likewise, passes through the waters of baptism, which pictures our being raised to new life in Christ. Peter even tells us, as we saw last week, that the flood and the ark are a type meant to point us to our salvation in Christ. Of course, Christ, who is the Lord of creation, exercises dominion in a way that Adam never could. He walks on the waters during the storm. And those who are in the boat are not safe until he gets into the boat with them, which shows Christ's superiority over Adam, Noah, and Moses. Psalm 89 declares, O Lord God of hosts, who is mighty like you, O Lord? Your faithfulness also surrounds you. You rule the raging of the seas. When the waves rise, you still them. And that passage was fulfilled in Christ. But at this point in the text, Noah is in need of the Lord of hosts to rule the raging seas. And so God causes this wind to blow, a wind that begins to dry up the water. The ark is probably pushed around by the wind. And consider that the whole globe is covered by water. There are no mountains, no trees, nothing to slow this wind, nothing but open sea. The ark could have been tossed on some pretty significant and terrific waves during this time. We don't know if this was a gentle wind or a stronger one, but to dry up that much water, I think it had to be a fairly significant wind. It might have been terrifying for those in the ark. They hear the wind outside. They feel the ark begin to move as it's pushed by the wind, and the water begins to swell into great waves, and the ark is riding up and down on these waves. And yet, one commentator calls this a wind of mercy, Just as he did with creation itself, with the coming of the flood, God regulates the timing of the end of the flood. It doesn't happen instantly. Had it happened instantly and all of that water receded quickly, it would have been geologically violent. Instead, God sends a wind to begin drying up the water. And In verse 2, it says, "...the fountains of the deep and the windows of the heaven were also stopped." And the rain from heaven was restrained. So it finally stops raining. There had been the initial 40 days of rain that caused the flood, but apparently over the course of five months, the rain had continued off and on. Now God stops the rain. He stops the fountains of the deep from adding additional water to the earth, and he begins to dry it with a wind. And then in verse 3, And the waters receded continually from the earth. At the end of the 150 days, the waters decreased. So there's our initial 150 days, five months of the waters prevailing on the earth, and God gradually dries them up. And then in verse 4, it says, then the ark rested in the seventh month, the seventeenth day of the month, on the mountains of Ararat. Now, this is the first time that anything is said to have rested since chapter 2, when God rested at the end of Of creation. And so again, we see a recapitulation of the story as we find rest. The ark rests on the mountain. And again, this must have been jarring for those in the ark. As the water recedes, the ark grounds itself now on a mountaintop and probably moved and tilted around as the waters receded until it came to rest fully. Can you imagine being inside the ark during this time and wondering what is going on out there? What is happening to us? Are we going to die now like the rest of humanity? Five months to the day since the rain started. Genesis chapter seven, verse 11. In the 600th year of Noah's life, in the second month, the 17th day of the month, on that day, all the fountains of the great deep were broken up and the windows of heaven were opened. And then in chapter eight, verse four, then the ark rested in the seventh month, the 17th day of the month, on the mountains of Ararat. The ark finally stops moving. You'd be eager to see what was going on out there, to get off this boat, but not yet. In verse five, it says, and the waters decreased continually until the 10th month. In the 10th month, on the first day of the month, the tops of the mountains were seen. So once the ark stops moving, it's another two and a half months before the tops of the mountains could be seen. Seven and a half months now confined in the ark. And then in verse 6, we read, So it came to pass at the end of 40 days that Noah opened the window of the ark, which he had made. Now notice what is going on here. The last time God spoke, Noah was told to come into the ark. That was seven and a half months ago. They've been tossed around like a cork in a hurricane for months now. The boat finally stops moving, and after two and a half months of waiting, Noah opens the window to see what's going on. In verse 7, it then says, Then he sent out a raven, which kept going to and fro until the waters had dried up from the earth. So he sends out a raven, and it just goes back and forth. It doesn't come back to him. In the verse 8, He also sent out from himself a dove to see if the waters had receded from the face of the ground. But the dove found no resting place for the sole of her foot, and she returned into the ark to him, for the waters were on the face of the whole earth. So he put out his hand and took her and drew her into the ark to himself. So the raven was restless, going back and forth, but the dove sought a place of rest, and so she came back to the ark. This is a picture for us of the difference between those who have been regenerate and those who are not. The unregenerate person knows no rest for his soul. It's like the raven continually going back and forth and refusing to turn to Christ to find rest. The one who has been regenerate by the Spirit of God moving in his heart is like the dove who turns to Christ and finds rest and safety in his hand. So Noah waits an additional seven days and sends the dove out again. In verse 10, he waited yet another seven days and again he sent the dove out from the ark. Then the dove came to him in the evening and behold, a freshly plucked olive leaf was in her mouth. And Noah knew that the waters had receded from the earth. So the olive leaf shows that the earth was coming to life once more, though there's still no place for the dove to call home. But this again casts our thoughts back to the initial creation in which first the waters were divided and the dry land was brought forth and then it was clothed with vegetation and only afterwards did it become a home for the birds of the air. The same sequence is happening in this recreation following the flood. Then in verse 12 we see... So he waited yet another seven days and sent out the dove, which did not return again to him anymore. So this time the dove does not come back. So no one knows that the earth has become habitable again. This was his intent when he sent out the birds to learn this information. It says in verse 8, he also sent out from himself a dove to see if the waters had receded from the face of the ground. Notice that there's no fault here in Noah as he uses ordinary means to discern the times in which he lives. He uses his own reason, his ingenuity in releasing the birds in order to learn what he can from their behavior. This is a lesson to us that as we experience life on planet Earth, God intends that we should use our reason and our perception to know the times in which we live. It's not sinful to practice discernment, to seek to understand the world around us. If you'll remember in First Chronicles, when David's mighty men are accounted for, as it lists those from each tribe, it tells of the sons of Issachar who had understanding of the times to know what Israel ought to do. This is to be commended. We may use our sanctified common sense, the powers of reason and ingenuity, to understand the times in which the Lord has placed us. Jesus tells us in the context of warning us about the persecution that we will suffer for his name. He says, behold, I send you out a sheep in the midst of wolves. Therefore, be wise as serpents and harmless as doves. In other words, discern the times. Be innocent and righteous in all your doings, but know what's going on. We're not told to be like ostriches sticking our head in the sand and unaware of what's happening in the world around us. We are to be wise and discerning to know the times, to understand the culture, and then patient to endure it with godliness. This is what Noah did. He sought to understand the situation, to see if the waters had receded from the face of the ground. But notice that even as he seeks this understanding, he doesn't open the ark. He doesn't venture out just yet. In verse 13, it says, and it came to pass in the 601st year, in the first month, the first day of the month, that the waters were dried up from the earth. And Noah removed the covering of the ark and looked, and indeed the surface of the ground was dry. So three months after the mountain tops became visible, Noah removes the covering so that he can actually take a look and see, and he sees that the ground is dry. Now, at this point, Noah and his family have been in the ark for ten and a half months. Anyone who has ever taken a long road trip knows that at some point, even the adults begin to ask, Are we there yet? How much longer? I'm ready to get out of this car. I'm sure by this point, Noah and his family were probably ready to stand on dry ground once more. And to his sight, it looks dry. But Noah doesn't rush out the door just yet. Verse 14 says, and in the second month, on the 27th day of the month, the earth was dried. Almost two more months go by before the earth was actually dry. Two months in which it looked dry, the surface of the ground was dry, but it wasn't safe yet. The surface might have been dry, but it was probably still soft. The earth had been underwater for almost a year. The earth was saturated. It might have looked dry, but it wasn't safe. So two more months in order for it to dry sufficiently so that the scriptures could say that the earth was dried. Two months of waiting. This was probably the hardest two months of waiting. He could see it. It looked dry. It looked inviting. This is where Noah got it right when Adam got it wrong. Noah stayed put. He could see outside. It looked good but he hadn't heard from God that it was time to go, and so he waited. Remember that Eve, with Adam with her, saw that the fruit was pleasant to the sight, and so she desired it. The earth must have looked pretty pleasant to the sight at this point, after nearly a year cooped up in the ark. It would have been tempting to take matters into your own hands, get that door open and step out once more, into fresh air and dry ground. But Noah waited on the Lord. As Psalm 37 says, For evildoers shall be cut off, but those who wait on the Lord shall inherit the earth. It's been just over a year at this point. In verse 15, it says, Then God spoke to Noah. A year in the ark, a global flood, death and destruction all around, a year of waiting in a confined space, And then God speaks. For a year, while their lives hung in the balance, Noah and his family clung by faith to the promises God had previously made, and they waited on the Lord. And here's the thing. Noah knew what his calling was. He knew he was supposed to repopulate the earth with humanity and with the animals he's caring for in the ark. He looks out. He sees that the earth looks dry. It looks habitable and welcoming, And yet he waits for the Lord. We have a tendency to get impatient, don't we? We we want to get on with things. We want to be doing something. We may know our calling, but we must wait on the Lord's timing. There's a theme of rest here in chapter 8. The ark rested. The dove sought a place of rest. The raven, by contrast, was restless. And while it doesn't say it explicitly, obviously Noah rested while he waited in the ark. But while he was resting, God was at work. God was at work to make the earth more than just appear to be safe, but to actually be safe. Too often we get impatient and we want to start doing things in our own power. We may even think we know what God has called us to do in life, but if we don't wait on his timing, the ground may not be solid under our feet. Jesus knew why he was on the earth. He knew what his purpose was. He knew his calling, and yet he waited. We see this in the Gospel of John six times. We're told that Christ did not go somewhere or that he avoided a certain situation because his hour or his time had not yet come. He waited on the timing of the Father. Last week, we saw that God (coughs) invited Noah to come into the ark, and we We compared that to Christ inviting us to come to Him to find rest, and now we see in verse 16 when God finally speaks again. He says, go out of the ark, you and your wife and your sons and your sons' wives with you. Go out. At the end of His earthly ministry, after Christ had invited us to come to Him to find rest, He then commanded His church to go. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations. And once again, the repetition of the story. God created Adam and Eve. He put them in the garden to tend and to keep it. He gave them the work of expanding the borders of the garden until the whole world had become a temple filled with worshipers. Then God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and subdue it. Have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And now in chapter 8, Noah receives the same commission. In verse 16, go out of the ark, you and your wife and your sons and your sons' wives with you. Bring out with you every living thing of all flesh that is with you, birds and cattle and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth, so that they may abound on the earth and be fruitful and multiply on the earth. And in chapter 9, which we'll get to next week, God tells Noah, as for you, be fruitful and multiply, bring forth abundantly in the earth and multiply in it. On Matthew, Jesus tells his church a new creation in him, go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age." In other words, fill the earth with worshipers of God. So the church knew its calling. They knew what God had commanded them to do, but they had to wait, didn't they? Behold, I send the promise of my Father upon you, but tarry in the city of Jerusalem until you are endued with power from on high. Like Noah, they knew their calling, but they had to wait on the Lord's timing. But when the time came, Noah... Obeyed Verse 18, So Noah went out, and his sons and his wife and his sons' wives with him. Every animal, every creeping thing, every bird, and whatever creeps on the earth, according to their families, went out of the ark. Noah waited. But once God gave the command, the time for waiting was at an end, and the time for obeying was there. And so Noah obeyed. We often talk about the difficulty of waiting, and it is difficult at different points in our lives, we have to wait on the Lord, and it can feel like an eternity. It feels like time is racing by, and we're not getting to the thing that we feel called to do. We're not hearing from God. We don't know what His plan is. What does He have in store for me? When will I meet the person that will be my spouse? When will we get married? When will we be able to have children? When will I get the job that I want? Seems like we're always waiting and most of the time not so patiently. And even if we know our calling, we still often have to wait on the Lord's timing. But on the other hand, we must be careful that we don't use waiting as an excuse for disobedience. When the command came from the Lord, Noah obeyed. He had to step out, out of the safety of the ark, into a new world, a world that was very different than the one that he had known before the flood, a world that is now full of dangers. But he obeyed, and so must we. Christ told us to be discerning and wise as serpents, to be innocent as doves in the face of evil, and he told us that in the context of warning us about the persecution and the suffering that we would endure for his name's sake. Waiting and obedience both depend on faith. And so we find ourselves praying along with the father who brought his child to Christ to be healed. Lord, I I believe, but help my unbelief. In the midst of the storm, while the ark was tossed about by the flood, Noah and his family were safe within the ark clinging to the promise of God that he would deliver them, and through them he would repopulate the earth. When the time came to leave the safety of that ark, I'm sure that Noah was still clinging to the promise of God in faith. Everything is different now. The weather is different. The temperature is different. The topography of the world is different. Civilization has been wiped out. Everyone and everything that Noah's family knew was gone, destroyed And they had in that moment only the promise of God to cling to. He had promised them that he would work through them as his instruments to repopulate the world with worshipers. We have more than they did in that moment. We have all of this, the written word of God. All of his promises, all of which find their yes and their amen in Christ And so when the storms of life toss us around, we are to cling to the promises of God in his word. Trust that he is at work in the storm even when we can't see it. Trust that he is preparing the way for us. Trust that he has prepared the way when he calls us to obedience. And trust that even now he is preparing a mansion for us in glory to be our inheritance in the kingdom of heaven. But the text of chapter 8 continues in verse 20. It says, Then Noah built an altar to the Lord, and took of every clean animal and of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. And the Lord smelled a soothing aroma. Then the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground for man's sake, although the imagination of man's heart is evil from his youth, nor will I again destroy every living thing as I have done. While the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, winter and summer, and day and night, shall not cease. Noah found grace, unmerited, undeserved favor in God's sight. And he lived by faith in the promise of God, and God preserved him through the flood. But Noah was not the promised seed who would crush the head of the serpent. He's making sacrifices, offering burnt offerings because the imagination of man's heart is evil continually from his youth, even Noah's. But God makes another promise here, doesn't he? He promises not to destroy the earth like that again. The earth will continue. He has kept his promise to Noah, preserved him from the flood, remade the world and brought him safely back to dry land. God will likewise keep his promise of a redeemer. But for now, mankind will have to wait on the Lord's timing. Next week, we'll explore God's covenant promises further, but for now, let me close with the words of Psalm 104. O Lord my God, you are very great. You are clothed with honor and majesty. You who laid the foundations of the earth so that it should not be moved forever, you covered it with the deep as with a garment. The water stood above the mountains. At your rebuke, they fled. At the voice of your thunder, they hastened away. They went up over the mountains. They went down into the valleys to the place which you founded for them. You have set a boundary that they may not pass over, that they may not return to cover the earth. May the glory of the Lord endure forever. May the Lord rejoice in his works. May we likewise rejoice in the work of God to preserve us, even in the periods of time when we must wait on him, waiting by faith in the promises that he has made. Let's pray.